Hello, all, and welcome back to episode 56 of the Strength Ratio podcast. I am your host, as always, Zachary Greenwald. Unfortunately, Kyle could not make it for this very special guest, but today we have on James Clear. James is the owner of jamesclear.com and, of course, the founder and the man behind the widely recognized and popular newsletter that he puts out that's enjoyed by hundreds of thousands of people. And James loves to discuss habit formation and human potential. And a little over a year ago, James took all of his findings uh, that kind of brings together a lot of evidence-based practices and research with his own experiences around habit formation and recognizing his own behaviors and behaviors of others and put them into a book. So James, I just want to first congratulate you in understanding that Atomic Habits is just only a little over a year old today, correct? Yeah, that's right. It came out almost exactly a year ago. Awesome. Well, we have just tremendously enjoyed it. It's a book that at first, to be completely honest, I was a little bit hesitant about. Um, not because I didn't know who you were, though it turns out that I actually know who you are. We have met and we actually went to the same gym for a period of time about a decade ago. Um, but I, I sometimes think and, and, and kind of, I should say subconsciously and without being well-informed, thought of the book as a self-help book. And I see self-help books as being something that I can just get the gist of online. And that might be my own ignorance. That might not be entirely true, perhaps to a, to a fault. Do I see it that way? But what I loved about the book is that it's something that you actually have to read, you know, many, many multiple times, I think, to really tease out uh, not just all of the nuance of what goes into habit formation and, and recognizing behaviors, but I just loved how methodical you made it. It, it read almost to me like a research paper from the uh, the subjects you're looking at and discussing to the observations, to the methods, to the conclusions. I mean, it was just so beautifully written and, and I just really enjoyed it and wanted to thank you. Oh, well, thank you so much. Yeah. I, um, I hear you. I, I'm skeptical of a lot of books for the same reason. There are a lot of books that, you know, are 200 pages, 300 pages, but they should have been a 20 page blog post or something. Um, but uh, yeah, I spent a lot of time working on Atomic Habits, depending on how you measure it. Uh, it was took somewhere between three and five years. Um, the first draft was about 720 pages, and the, the final product is about 250. So um, I didn't really cut material as much as condense it and try to um, only say things that were worth saying and retain the, the potency of each idea while making the, the book shorter and tighter and easier to read and so on. Um, so it's, it's definitely gratifying to hear uh, that you enjoyed it and found it worth reading. And um, thank you for, for taking the time to check it out. Absolutely. And for those who don't follow James on uh, social media, especially on Instagram and of late, you will see a lot of great figures that James has in the book that he will put and yeah, as well as excerpts, but there are a lot of great figures, including graphs and drawings that will be featured on, on your social media that I think are really helpful, but you know, the book is on audacity and then you can certainly buy the book at any bookstore. Um, but you know, very early on in the book. And, and I think this is what let me know that not only was this book in line with kind of major, I, I think concepts that applied to discussions around training that we have almost daily, um, 
but it, it's it's it speaks to something I think that it hooked me, um, and I'll, I'll kind of jump into this topic. The topic that hooked me was your discussion around. Uh, goals and systems, because I, I've always found myself talking with clients, especially those with whom we've had relationships for you know, many multiple years, and our, our discussions around training outcomes or training competitions, these things kind of ebb and flow. And if we're being flexible and, and realistic, you know, we want to avoid boredom, as you mentioned in the book, that's kind of what's going to kill any and all habit. Uh, but I found that, you know, in our discussion of goals and as they evolve, it's always been nice to have some flexibility with these athletes and uh, to to let this process evolve. And and those processes are really kind of rooted in in, in certain uh, habits that these athletes have created that let them simply be consistent. And what you explained kind of put language to what I've spoken about with athletes and what I've been trying to discuss even just now, but would you mind speaking to goals and systems and and how you first kind of came about this idea and recognize the strength of systems? Sure. So uh, first I, before I criticize goals uh, to a certain degree, I should say this is coming from someone who's very goal oriented for a long time. I would set goals for, the weights I wanted to lift in the gym, the grades I wanted to get in school, the numbers I wanted to hit in my business, like all kinds of things. Um, And I I have this specific memory of, um, I wrote down a bunch of goals that I wanted to achieve my sophomore year of college. And I wrote them on a piece of paper and put them uh, in my closet in a a certain way the closet was laid out where basically only I could see it. And when I opened up the closet, like my roommates, it wouldn't be like in their face or something. So I just like try to keep this little like private list. Mm -hmm. And um, I came across it a few years ago. And what was funny is that uh, I did end up achieving one of those goals 11 years later. uh, And I, I had, um, I had this insight that the only, the only reason I had achieved that one and not some of the others that were on the list is because that's the only one that I had built a system around. It is the only one that I had stuck with the process for all the others were just kind of like hopes that I had, but I didn't actually uh, design anything uh, to, to get myself there. And you start to see this actually in a lot of areas, uh, which is that the goal we often talk about goals because they're important for setting a sense of direction and developing a sense of clarity and determining where to allocate your attention and energy. And all of those things are true. It is true that goals can help you uh, develop clarity and figure out where to focus. But so much time is spent on the results. So much time is spent talking and thinking about the outcomes that I think we start to believe the outcome is the thing that matters. Uh, and this is probably magnified even more by uh, a results-driven society, uh, whether it's social media or the news or television in general. We tend to live in a world where we only hear about the results of things. We hear about the Broadway play once it becomes a hit. We hear about the music single once it hits number one. We hear about the book once it becomes a bestseller. Or uh, we think about the Instagram star once they've had a million followers. And because all we see all day long are um, highlights and rewards and outcomes, it becomes easy to think that that's the thing that matters. But to translate this to training, for example, um, 
you only see the the news story of man loses a hundred pounds. What you never see is a news story of man eats chicken and salad for lunch today, right? It's the the process is hidden from view, and the results are highly visible. And I think that for all of those reasons, we tend to overvalue the results and undervalue the process. And so the the insight that I share in the book, the the sort of short summary of this is that. We do not rise to the level of our goals. We fall to the level of our systems. And you see this in almost any area that, uh, you know, if you have a job opening and 100 people apply for the job, presumably every candidate has the goal of getting the job. Or if you have 30 teams in the league that are all competing for a championship, presumably every team has the goal of winning the championship. And so the winners and the losers in any particular domain, they often have the same goals. Uh, the goal is not what separates them. And if the winners and the losers have the same goal, then the goal cannot be the thing that makes the difference in their performance. And so it may be necessary, but it is not sufficient for success. And I think um, what is sufficient, or perhaps even what we could say what is uh, necessary, is to have a system that moves you forward. And the way that I would define this, if we want to translate it into habits a little bit more, your goal, that's your desired outcome. But your system, that's the collection of daily habits that you will follow. And if there is ever a gap between your desired outcome and your daily habits, your habits will always win. It'll never be the desired outcome that overpowers your habits. You will go wherever the system takes you to go, um, even if you don't intend for it or don't ask for it or don't design for it. The system is inevitably moving you toward a current result. And we can translate this even further into most areas of life. You could say that for the majority of life, your results are a lagging measure of your habits. So your knowledge is a lagging measure of your learning and reading habits. Your weight and physical fitness is a lagging measure of your eating and training habits. Your bank account is a lagging measure of your financial habits. Even the clutter on your desk or in your bedroom is a lagging measure of your cleaning habits. And that larger idea, I think, encapsulates why systems, the collection of daily habits that you have, are so important to build. Um, because for pretty much any area, the results that you experience are a lagging measure of those habits. They're a natural outcome of that system. And so if you want different results, what you need are not necessarily different goals, but a different system. And I think what spoke to me most upon reflection with this is that, uh, let's say we have a new client intake. This is a remote client. We're not seeing them in person. We're just kind of seeing through our form submission, which upon reading this book, I'm hoping to revisit and might even bring up some questions around better ways to like tease out what people are really after. But one thing that, you know, myself and, and my three other business partners, we would discuss is, you know, how do we even know if our goals are our own? And, and I got to thinking, well, the people who come to us, especially those who are from a distance, they, you know, they're, they're kind of into training. We might get some new trainees, and, and we often do uh, at our gym on site here in Asheville. But what I recognized was, you know, even if a goal that they might spit out, I, I want to be, uh, you know, trimmed by my friend's wedding. I want to snatch a hundred kilos. Well, regardless, even if we just accept that even if it might not even be something they believe in, I recognize that if we create the systems to get there, the goals can then change, but we've still started a systems-based approach that kind of opens the door to, if not that initial goal, probably something well 
within that similar area, right? Because they're just going to be uh, a bit more consistent. They're going to understand that upon reaching that goal, it's just simply a momentary change. It's not lasting. So when you hit that 100 kilo snatch, which you thought might've been big, it's not big enough anymore. So you have to hit 120 kilo snatch and it just keeps repeating itself. And, and, you know, I, I really just loved how, and, and I think this kind of, like you said, goes back to the process and it ties into this theme of, well, you know, how can someone be really successful with this process? Because that's not very easy. And you discuss this, you know, ability to kind of fall in love with the process. And perhaps if you're not in love with the process, it might not be the right goal. Well, you know, you bring up some interesting points. And I think the the idea that you're talking about, like, let's start by building the system and then maybe the goal will change. Maybe the milestone will move. Um, this, I think, is an underappreciated truth about habits, which is a habit must be established before it can be improved. And it's true that our goals and priorities change in life. We enter different seasons and exit other ones. And so, yeah, like what's important to you now probably will be very different than what's important to you in 10 years. But if you haven't built any habits, if you don't have any system, if you're just sitting there trying to think of the right theory, you know, and we do this all the time. We try to come up with the perfect business plan, the ideal workout program, the best diet plan to follow. And we think that if we can't do it just right from the start, then, oh, well, why should we get going at all? But if you don't have any habit there to start with, there's no, there's no raw material to work with. There's nothing to optimize. Um, and, you know, in the case of people who are just training for the first time, I, I tell the story in the book of, I have this reader, his name's Mitch. And when he, he ended up losing over hundred pounds. And when he went to the gym for the first time, he wasn't allowed to stay for longer than five minutes. So he would get in the car, drive to the gym, get out, do half an exercise, get back in the car, drive home. And it sounds silly. It seems ridiculous. But what you realize is he was mastering the art of showing up. He was becoming the type of person that went to the gym, even if it was only for five minutes. And um, I think we do that to ourselves a lot. We focus so much on optimizing and finding the perfect plan of action that we don't give ourselves permission to show up in a small way. But you have to be able to show up in a small way so that you have something to build on. Mm -hmm. um, and so some of the ideas in the book are, are kind of organized around getting over that, of taking that first step gaining a foothold, and then we can build a system and expand and evolve from there. Absolutely. And what you had just mentioned, that story, uh, as it pertains to the two-minute rule, which in the book you discuss as perhaps a, a way to you know, test this, this uh, first step uh, success. You give the examples of uh, you know, people will say, oh, I'm going to read uh, each bed before night and, and perhaps better to just say you're going to read one page and you challenge the reader to say, well, if this sounds like a trick, or for instance, another example, of if, if you're not one to read before bed is that if you're wanting to do 30 minutes of yoga or you're wanting to go for a run the next day, say a three mile run, maybe you just simply take out the yoga mat or you just have the shoes ready and, and, and they seem like tricks, right? But um, like you said... I'm sure that client, like you mentioned, didn't spend just five minutes. He recognized the importance of it in his health and he stayed longer. I, I think that's so interesting. Yeah, there are kind of multiple benefits. I mean, once you have a workout uh, habit built or you're familiar with training and comfortable with training, like in my case, uh, you know, I've been lifting for a few years now and um, I, I love it and I do it a lot. My wife and I train together. 
And what I've realized is that the thing that determines if we get a workout in or not is really if we change into our workout clothes. Yeah. If that if that happens, the next two hours are already decided. We'll get in the car, we'll go to the gym, we'll train, but like it's already done at that yeah. point. Um, and so there is sort of this like lead domino effect that happens where if you can get your running shoes on or you can roll out the, the yoga mat or you can train, change into a workout clothes, then then you've already crossed that kind of first hurdle. You've um, the the it's like the coefficient of friction drops at that point to use like a physics metaphor. You're, the box is already moving. It's already sliding across the table. It becomes easier to keep it going at that point. Mm-hmm. Um, now, that I think is true for people who have already built the habit or are familiar with it. It really just, my dad always says this, he likes to go swimming and he always says like the hardest part is getting in the water. It's, the, it's harder to get in the water than it is to do the workout. Um, and uh, Ed Lattimore has a great quote that I like for this where he says, the heaviest weight of the gym is the front door. Mm. Um, and it's like, yeah, if you can just get there, that's usually most of the battle uh, for the majority of the time. Now, at the very beginning, when, you have, when you're not comfortable training and you haven't showed up and it's not a habit and uh, you don't realize what the long-term get benefits could be because you haven't experienced them yet, it's your first week of training or first month of training or whatever, then I think scaling it down, that can just be helpful to make it less overwhelming um, because the first time that you step into a new space to perform a habit, you often feel like an imposter. You know, like this is one of the biggest challenges for people when they go to the gym for the first time. They feel like they don't belong or they're being judged or, you know, like, I don't know what to do. Am I doing this wrong? Do I look stupid? And so scaling it down kind of helps contain some of that fear a little bit and uh, get you into the pattern of showing up so that then again, you can optimize and scale up from there. Totally. And, and, and continue this habit now that began with, uh, sorry, continue the conversation that began with systems and goals and taking us now a step further to um, outcome-based habits and identity-based habits. You, you described this in the book that an outcome-based habit is a focus on what you want to achieve, where an identity-based habit is the focus on who you wish to become. So an, an example would be you are someone who trains. You are you you exercise. It's like a, it, it's what you described. It's what you do. It's part of your daily hygiene. It's, it's really non-negotiable. But if we have the uh, emphasis so much on the outcome, it, it really becomes quite delicate for many reasons. Like we've mentioned uh, that that outcome when you achieve it is momentary. It's it's quite fleeting. Um, And then another thing too is in the way you kind of have it designed in the books is that if the outcome doesn't quite go our way, we kind of reflect it back in on ourselves for having perhaps failed or or, uh, this outcome uh, is a measure of our worth as a human being versus this behavior that I'm participating in is just something that I do. It's a part of who I am, good or bad, I'm going to give my best effort. So could you maybe shine a light, James, on on did, did this thinking come concurrent with systems and goals, or was it an extension of that, that first uh, topic that we just shared? Yeah, I'm really glad you brought this up because I think that uh, identity and the link between behavior and identity is really the ultimate reason that our habits matter so much. Um, So to answer your last question briefly, um, this this idea, identity-based habits, came to me before 
systems and goals. Um, but I think it connects well, and maybe even the the concept of systems and goals. And as I I've originally came across that terminology reading this article in the Wall Street Journal from Scott Adams and um, for systems and goals. And so maybe uh, at that point, I kind of had the identity thing bouncing around my mind as well and just kind of connected the two. But I think they certainly uh, integrate well with each other. But um, okay, so the, the key idea here, why I think this is so important, your habits are how you embody a particular identity. So for example, every time that you make your bed, you embody the identity of someone who is clean and organized. Or each night, if you study biology for 20 minutes, you embody the identity of someone who is studious. Um, and over time, by embodying a certain identity, by performing a certain habit over and over again, you start to reinforce that identity. And the way that I summarize this in the book is that every action you take is like a vote for the type of person that you wish to become. And so, uh, you know, the first time that you show up at the gym and do a workout, you might not think like I'm an athlete or I'm fit or I'm the type of person who doesn't miss workouts. But over time, as you continue to repeat that for a week or a month or six months or two years, at some point you cross this invisible threshold where you think, yeah, this is part of my identity. I'm the type of person who doesn't miss workouts. And this is why I think small habits can be so valuable because like, no, writing one sentence does not finish the book you're working on, but it does cast a vote for I'm a writer and no meditating for one minute may not bring you like peace and calm and enlightenment, but it does cast a vote for I'm a meditator. And this is ultimately what we're really working toward. Like the outcome based habits that you mentioned are when people organize their habits around a particular goal. Like I want to run a marathon or I want to write a book, but the real goal is not to become a marathoner. The goal is to become a runner. The real goal is not to write a book. The goal is to become a writer. Um, and so those shifts in identity, I am a runner. I am a writer. I am a um, meditator. Those are examples of identities that signal a shift in the way that you look at yourself internally, a shift in self-image. And ultimately, true behavior change is really identity change. Because if you've shifted your identity, if you now look at yourself in a new way, if you have this new story for who you are and what is normal for you, well, you're not even really pursuing behavior change anymore. You're just acting in alignment with the type of person that you see yourself to be. Mm -hmm. And this is the kind of thing that you hear a lot from people once they've gone through some type of transformation or improvement. They'll say something like, yeah, I mean, I, I never went to the gym consistently before, but now I can't imagine not doing it. Like, it's just part of who I am. Or it's like what you just said a moment ago. It's part of my daily hygiene. Um, or I used to have to motivate myself all the time to, to sit down and meditate. But now, like, I just do it naturally. I'm a meditator. And looking at yourself in that way is a much more powerful way uh, to try a change of behavior. And you see, um, you see this with people who break bad habits as well. Like you might go up to two people and uh, offer, offer them a cigarette. And the first person says, oh, no, thanks. I'm trying to quit. And the second person turns you down as well. But they say, oh, no, thanks. I'm not a smoker. Mm -hmm. And it's the same action. They're both turning down the cigarette. But the first person is continuing to identify as someone who smokes and is trying to do something that they're not. And the second person says, oh, no, that's part of my past self, not part of who I am. I'm not a smoker. And so it signals a shift in identity. Um, and so I think that focus, not on what we wish to achieve, but who we wish to become, 
is a better place to allocate our attention and energy when it comes to building habits. Because ultimately, the thing that's going to get any habit to stick is viewing yourself in that way. And the real challenge here, and this is true for pretty much anything we talk about today with relation to habits, is that habits are a double-edged sword. So all of these strategies, they can just as easily cut you down as they can build you up. And people use identity all the time as a reason to not do things or to not change. They'll say things like, I have a sweet tooth, or I'm bad at math, or I'm terrible at remembering people's names. And those are all stories, internal narratives, identities that we hold on to that prevent us from upgrading and expanding and growing. Mm -hmm. But you can also build new identities uh, that serve you. And so I think the real way to look at this is that you are a collection of identities. You are both a dad and a brother and an entrepreneur and a weightlifter and all a bunch of other things too. And um, the collection of labels and internal stories that you have needs to be continuously upgraded, expanded, tested, um, investigated, improved in order for you to advance and evolve as a person. And so uh, what we're really looking to do is not to like take your current identity and rip it in half as much as we are to ask ourselves, which aspects of my identity are no longer serving me and how can I build new habits that cast a vote and build up evidence of the identity that I, I do want to achieve and want to move toward. That's awesome. And I, I do uh, um, love how at the end there, you mentioned having not just one, but multiple. When I was reading the book, I, I read about the identity-based habits and outcome-based habits. I was like, okay, I'm, this makes a lot of sense. I, I really like how this is being discussed. Um, and then I had a client interaction and not yet in the book had you presented the importance of having not just one identity, but multiple. And this one particular client was really challenged, was really uh, being challenged in that when certain outcomes weren't being achieved, we saw that it was kind of reflecting back on this identity uh, as having perhaps being a letdown or having failed themselves or others. And it got you know really challenging for this individual because there wasn't really an identity outside of this athlete who, who, who they had known themselves to be. And, and certainly there might be other, uh, uh, many other things that they can identify themselves as, but you know, in, in this moment when training was challenging or life was challenging, there was just the one athlete to fall back on. And this became very hard. So when I, I read this in the book, I was like, Ooh, you know, I, I wonder uh, what James would say about this. But then of course, towards the end of the book, you discuss that that very matter, uh, how important it is to not just have that one identifying factor of your life, but you know the, the spouse and the the dog mom or dog dad or business partner, et cetera. Right. I think it's a it's a really crucial thing. Um, the process that we're describing is really it's not a line; it's a circle. Mm -hmm. And so you know you start and you don't have a habit that you've built or that's not a big part of your identity. And so by performing the behavior, you are providing evidence of being this new person and you're, you know, like establishing this new identity and uh, building it up and believing in it more deeply. And at some point it becomes automatic and becomes part of your lifestyle and life goes on and you continue to do that. And then maybe a year or five years or 15 years or whenever uh, something shifts. And now the identity that used to serve you no longer does anymore. 
And so we have to return to the top of the circle and start the process all over again. And that's continually happening in a variety of areas in our life. And I think that um, whenever you face that kind of shift, it can be helpful to reframe the previous identity that you had so that you can see that how it could still continue to serve you. So for example, um, I played baseball all the way through college. It was a big part of my life. I was an athlete for many years. And then suddenly you get done playing and one day you wake up and you're like, I'm no longer an athlete anymore. So like, what am I? This was a big part of who I was. And you hear the same kind of thing from many people who are in the military. Um, they'll say like, well, what is your identity? I'm a soldier. And that was like who they were for many years. And then they retire, they leave the military, they move on to another phase of life. And they struggle because they're like, I'm no longer a soldier. That was like what I, I uh, hung my hat on. That was how I defined myself. And so I think it can be useful to look at the aspects of those things. I'm an athlete, I'm a soldier, et cetera, that can translate to the next environment. So you might not be able to say, I'm a soldier anymore, but you could say, uh, what is your identity? Well, I'm reliable. I'm a good teammate. I'm the type of person who finishes what I start. Mm -hmm. And so by shifting the, the way that you view that previous experience in your life, um, you can start to apply that same identity to the next context. And um, a little bit of that reframing, I think, can go a long way because otherwise you feel like you just lost a sense of yourself. Um, and this kind of gives you an avenue to maybe redirect that purpose to whatever the next thing is on the horizon. Would you say that it is I have cultivate or I, I am now the sum of all of the attributes of my systems in a way? Mm, that's a good way to define it. I haven't put it that way before, but I like it. Um, the, I've, what I've said previously is that your life today is the sum of your previous habits, right? Like wherever you are today, whether you like it or not, mm. um, whether you're happy with your current position or you hope it will change soon. Uh, most of that is a factor of your current habits. There certainly is an element of luck and randomness and uncertainty and maybe good fortune or misfortune that is thrown in there as well. Both luck and, um, and your habits influence your outcomes in life. But your habits are the only part of that equation that is under your control. And the only rational, reasonable approach is to focus on what you can control. So for that reason, um, I like to just simplify it to say, your current life is the sum of your previous habits. And um, you can maybe even translate a little bit more deeply, like you just mentioned, which is your current identity is the, the sum of your previous systems. Um, and so you're really trying to find what are the ways in those previous habits and previous systems continue to serve me in the current context. Great. So I think we covered identity and uh, how important it can be when we have identity, uh, I, I want to say this, identity perspective, so to speak, on, on habits and on, on our behaviors. And if we, uh, and we also, sorry, discussed perhaps the detriment when we only, uh, that we potentially run into when we take on new habits attached to a, a, a single identity and perhaps not to multiple. Um, in a way, and, and this, I'm just kind of like you know, thinking, it, it almost seems like, sorry, it, it would be hard to, be focused on goals alone without systems uh, and not have an outcome based. Am I saying that right? Because um, I, I, I see systems and identity as being pretty congruous uh, and goals and outcome as being pretty congruous, but I, perhaps I'm tripping myself up there. But um, well, I think that's, I, I, uh, I think you're, I think I get where you're going. I'll, I'll just add my little color to it. So, um, 
let's take a company as an example. So a company often thinks about their system or their process. They have standard operating procedures. They've got things that people are doing, their job roles each day. And uh, they also talk a lot about corporate culture and what it means to be part of that company. And I think if we just wanted to change the terms a little bit, the true culture of any company is the shared habits of that group. And the shared habits of a team or an organization ultimately determine what your identity is. They determine what is important around there, how people interact with each other, how we operate, how we interact and interface with customers and so on. Uh So in that way, the system, the shared habits of the group uh, naturally leads to or reinforces the identity, the culture of the group. Um, And so there's this natural connection between your daily habits and your identity, how you view yourself. You know, like if... um, If we buy into the phrase that I mentioned a few minutes ago, that every action you take is a vote for the type of person you want to become, well, then the daily habits are, those are all actions are casting a a lot of votes for being a certain type of person. And so it makes sense that your daily process or your system is going to be the thing that's so closely tied to how you view yourself and what your identity is. Um, Meanwhile, on the other side, you've got the goals that you set. And goals are, I mean, basically that's what a goal is, is it's a desired outcome. It's a, uh, a wish or a hope for the future of what reward you're going to achieve. In a sense, whenever you set a goal, you try to predict the future, which nobody, of course, can do, but that's what we're, we're trying to do. We're trying to predict, I'll lose X amount of pounds by a certain date, or I will hit Y amount of revenue by next year, or whatever it is. We try to predict when and how the future will happen. Um, And of course, that can be a challenging thing because nobody can predict the future, but also because you lock yourself in to only one version of success. Um, It it has to happen that way. Otherwise, you don't hit your goal. And um, so for all of those are just some additional reasons that I think it's probably more useful to focus on the system. Sometimes when I tell ambitious people that they resist a little bit, and I totally get it as someone who set goals for a long time, like I care a lot about results. And this is often where the ambitious people say, well, what are you saying? Goals don't matter. Results don't matter. Like are results important? And the answer is no, the world is very results driven. Like outcomes certainly do matter. Uh, At least at some point, even if you're focused on the system, ultimately you want to get a result, but if you optimize everything for the goal, then you might win this one time. But if you optimize for the system, then you can win again and again. And so um, in that way, actually, systems are for people who care about the long-term results and winning repeatedly. Goals are for people who care about short-term results and only winning once. And, and it's here where I drew another parallel to the short-term being attached to instant gratification as you touch on in the book and the long-term systems approach tied to the delayed gratification. And our motto is wait for the cookies, which speaks to some of the literature that you had covered talking about grade schoolers or, or kindergartners presented with some kind of treat. And when tracked on a long enough timeline, those grade schoolers or kindergartners who were able to delay the treat perhaps for two cookies, if they had just held out for 10 minutes on the one cookie, uh, they had higher SAT scores, they had uh, greater salaries, all these things, uh, very interesting stuff. But it, it does kind of speak to this 
uh, systems approach versus goal approach. And you know, we, in our approach to training, advocate for a way of investing uh, and, and preserving your ability to reach future goals by, you know, kind of really taking stake in these present objectives, as we've mentioned, and how, you know, with this sustainable approach that we try to educate people uh, about, it's it's kind of echoing a lot what we're discussing, that you're empowering to achieve now while building to achieve even more in the future. And when I thought about delayed gratification versus instant gratification, I don't know why, but I think I just perhaps unknowingly thought mainly about individuals' environments, but not a lot about perhaps things like our evolution or our brain chemistry, uh, our neurobiology. But you present uh, at least two instances in the book where you kind of dive into this and perhaps look to explain, you know, why is it that perhaps we want things more than we like having them? Why ordering the package is almost better than when you finally have the product in your hands? Or uh, uh, perhaps there are reasons too why uh, evolutionarily we might, uh, you know, uh, have understandably favored something that was right there, immediate outcome. Uh, immediate return. So would you mind just speaking about certain, uh, in your research, certain factors that might help explain uh, in terms of you know, how our brains work, why that kind of makes sense for us? Yeah. Um, this was an interesting area of research that I came across as I was looking, uh, looking around and digging into the book and, and working on it. So uh, there may be two kind of key things to mention here. So the first is just like a big picture view, which kind of makes sense that we'd be a little more focused immediately than we are on things that might pay off in the long run. Generally speaking, in our evolutionary history, uh, dealing with an immediate threat is much more important than uh, securing a long-term reward. If you know you are at risk of dying or there's a storm on the horizon or a predator around the corner, then that's a solution that needs to be, that's a problem that needs a solution right now. And so we're heavily wired to focus on the immediate moment or our immediate needs because those are the ones that help keep us alive. Um, meanwhile, if you're you know, deciding, do I seek shelter from the storm or do I avoid this predator? Uh, or should I focus on foraging the berry patch that is half a mile away because then we might have more to eat next week? Um, that does that, that, uh, reward pales in comparison to the importance of dealing with the immediate threat. And so, um, organisms and species that were better at prioritizing those immediate needs probably, uh, had a greater odds of survival and, and did well. Um, and this is what scientists now refer to as the immediate return environment, uh, that most of our ancestors grew up in, um, and passed their genes down in which is an environment where uh, most of the choices that you're making have some kind of immediate payout for your life. The challenge, of course, is that modern life is much more of a delayed return environment in the sense that you choose where to go to school now, and then you go to school for four years before you uh, graduate. Or you pick a career and you go to work and you get a paycheck in two weeks, or you get uh, to retire in 20 years. And so many of the choices that we make now, whether to study for class, whether to go to work this morning, whether to save for retirement, have very long payoffs. And that's not as well aligned with uh, what our, our maybe natural history uh, was more um, inclined to. So 
as a result of that, as a result of those forces sort of sort of shaping us in that way, um, there have been some changes in, in the brain or uh, evolution has shaped the brain in a certain way. So this is one of the things that I didn't know about until I was re researching the book. But we could categorize um, the kind of two major forces, internal forces that are happening as you're building a habit as wanting and liking. And so wanting is when you feel a desire or a craving or an urge or excitement to do something. So it's like the motivational force that gets you to act. I want to take a bite of the donut. I want to smoke a cigarette. I want to do one push up, et cetera. And then liking is the satisfaction or pleasure or enjoyment that comes after uh, doing something. So um, I take a bite of the donut and it is in fact sweet and sugary and tasty. And I like that sensation, for example. Well, it turns out that the wanting regions of the brain are actually much larger and more pervasive than the liking regions of the brain. So the wanting regions of the brain are entire sections that might light up on a, an MRI scan or um, on a brain scan of some sort that uh, researchers will use to analyze what's going on when we're tempted with something. Like, for example, when a cocaine act cocaine addict sees the powder or when a gambler sees the dice and then the liking centers in comparison are actually like smaller little hot spots these little islands throughout the brain that do light up when a gambler hits uh the the winning number or when um an addict does actually take the hit of cocaine and so on um and this also, when you think about it a little more deeply, makes sense from a survival standpoint. Strictly speaking, if you never enjoyed any experience in life, you didn't get any pleasure out of it, it was everything was neutral, there was no benefit to doing it, but you always wanted to do it, then you would still survive because wanting is what happens before the action is taken. It's the thing that motivates you to take action. Liking only comes after uh, as a result. And so um, it makes sense that the people who want the most, who strive the most, who uh, have the strongest desire to take action, whether that's seeking shelter from a storm or avoiding a predator or doing the next set of squats, that um, those regions of the brain would be larger because they uh, more significantly determine whether we take the actions we need to survive and achieve the outcomes that we want to achieve. So um for all of those reasons the the biological inclination is more is one more toward wanting than liking totally that's awesome and james what i wanted to wrap up this talk with because in a way i, I see you not just as a writer but you know having spoken to you know many uh, influential companies and uh professional sports teams in a way I, I see you as a coach in your own right. And I was curious as for when you can think of, I don't know if you would consider them to be clients, if you're ever contracted in that way, but when people you know, come to you to talk about behavior or habits and perhaps they're looking to, you know, break out of a rut and, and acknowledge and then improve upon bad habits or start even on, on new habits. This involves a lot of human emotion how have you found a balance between educating individuals around what you know, which is behavior and habit formation or why habits don't work it, in a way that you're able to draw lines versus 
say like a clinical psychologist or someone who would be offering professional care for, uh, I would say, mental health reasons, if that makes sense. Hmm. Yeah, that's an interesting question. So um, thank you for saying that. I consider me a coach. I like to think of myself, um, I have like different ways of framing it. When I think about the work that I do, I consider myself often more like an artist or an entrepreneur, like a craftsman or something like that. Like I'm trying to, to perform my craft really well. I want to produce something that is um, beautiful in a, a certain sense, um, or maybe like think about producing a plus work instead of a minus work or something like that. Um, but I also, a lot of the time will consider myself a teacher of some sort, sort of like a modern version of a teacher rather than being in a school or a classroom. Uh, I'm teaching concepts online or on social media or through my book or whatever, um, keynote speech, things like that. So I definitely identify with that kind of idea. Um, but you are right. I come at it from a very different standpoint than a clinical psychologist or a physician or a psychiatrist or um, even somebody who doesn't treat patients, but just has like a PhD in psychology. Um, and so I think that it provides me with um, a few advantages, actually. So one of them is that I consider myself to be idea agnostic in the sense that I don't care where an idea comes from. I don't need a PhD in biology or in neuroscience or in psychology or wherever. I will happily take the best ideas from all of those fields. Um, and if it's useful, then it's useful. So my the way that I think about the role I play or the, the space that I occupy is that I try to be a bridge between scientifically backed ideas uh, and scientific research and academic output and daily life and what it looks like to practice those ideas in life and work in the gym and so on. And so what I'm mostly concerned with is, is an idea scientifically grounded and then how can I apply it? And so my role is kind of as the uh, applier of ideas, the practical action step, the distilling the scientific concept into something that we can use. And that's sort of like how I view uh, my space or my, my job. And um, the great thing is if people feel like, oh, you know, I wish you had a credential. How should I know if this is right? Um, or uh, what about, you know, someone who has a PhD who disagrees with you? Um, my response is always the same, which is let's try it out and see what works. Uh, and I don't, I like have no claim and neither do any people who have a particular degree or certification or whatever. They have no monopoly on knowledge. Um, there's no, nobody gets to like draw a border around that and says who knows what and who doesn't. Um, and the ultimate test of any idea is, does it work in the real world? And so in that sense, I feel like the strictest test to put any um, idea up to is can people use it and does it work? Um, and so I try to, to do my best to put my ideas to that test every day by sharing with the audience, talking and working with companies, and then hopefully ultimately implementing the ideas in my own life. Because at the end of the day, um, I'm really a peer with my readers. The only difference between myself and my readers is that when I learn something, I, I write it down and share it and email it out to the group. Um, but otherwise, we're all going through this together and uh, I'm just trying to like learn as I go along. So I think there's still a lot that I have to learn in, in a, to a certain degree. 
I view Atomic Habits as like my most polished first draft attempt at what habits are and how they work. And ultimately, I hope that the book can become and uh, it can become the most comprehensive and useful guide to how habits work and how to build them. And the only way for that to be true today and 10 years from now and 20 years from now is for me to continue to update and expand and evolve uh, as I learn more. Awesome. Well, if you subscribe to James uh, James's newsletter, you'll be able to follow in this continued evolution. If you just head to jamesclear.com. You can find the sign up for newsletter there. James, just wanted to thank you so much for your time. And in asking that last question, I think, you know, while perhaps you don't have a title to your name, I think any one of those titles that you mentioned, whether you're a coach, a psychologist, a psychiatrist, uh, anyone who works in the physical sciences or with people or in the health sciences, I think that this is a book to have on your shelf and to pass along to others to make people a bit more self-actualizing around why they're doing what they're doing and how they can begin to help better understand moving forward in a positive direction with habits of their choosing. James, thank you so much. And we really appreciate the time. Great. Thank you so much. I appreciate it.